Benifer is back. Brad and Jen are friends again. And Paris Hilton is somehow still making headlines. 20 years later, we're living in the world that the 2000s tabloids created. On this series, I'm going to tell you the story of a decade of American life through the trash we love to consume. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Claire Malone, and this is Just Like Us, the tabloids that changed America. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone star in Hulu's limited series Under the Bridge, a chilling true crime story based on the acclaimed novel. Hailed as a riveting and heartbreakingly realistic work by the Chicago Sun-Times and featuring excellent performances, according to Time magazine, the series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series and outstanding supporting actress in a limited series for Keough and Gladstone. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. Hello, everyone. My name is Matt Bellany, and this is the premiere episode of The Town, a podcast that is not about the Ben Affleck movie, but about Hollywood or the town, as we call it. I'm a former entertainment lawyer, and I was the editor of The Hollywood Reporter, and now I'm a founding partner of a media company called Puck, and I write a newsletter twice a week called What I'm Hearing, which details everything going on behind the scenes in the industry. So I wanted this podcast to act as an extension of that newsletter. Me and a rotating stable of experts discussing the biggest issues, most talked about stories in Hollywood. To start off for our launch episode, I'm going to review what happened over the weekend with my colleague, Ben Landy. And later, we're going to get to our guest, Jeff Bach, to talk about the Batman and everything that's going on with the box office. All right, Ben. So uh, this news just came across the wire that uh, Discovery, which is taking over Warner Brothers in the next couple of months, they are going to merge the HBO Max streaming service with Discovery Plus, the CFO announced today. And that had been expected, but they officially announced it. And to me, this really shows that we are headed towards a world where there are going to be three or four global streaming services owned by major international media conglomerates. And they're all going to offer a bundle of different programs and brands in one place. And it looks like Warner Brothers Discovery is going to have a massive HBO Max slash Discovery product, maybe eventually roll in CNN Plus, which is also owned by them. Um, what do you think about that? I don't know. Ice Road Truckers next to the Sopranos. Um, I guess it makes a certain kind of economic sense. Um, you know, this is a, a zero-sum game and people are only going to have so many subscription products, right? So at a certain point, if you really want to juice the numbers for HBO Max, it makes sense to combine these into one product. Yeah, I mean, that's the goal here is you want to make it easy for the consumer. And, you know, it doesn't mean they won't charge more for certain things. You can do upsells within a certain product. But, you know, that's where I think that's where all this stuff is heading. You know, the the value proposition of keeping services separate is that you can sell different subscriptions. And Disney's dealing with this right now because they have Hulu and they have Disney+. Plus. But overseas... Disney is 
the home of all of that content. They have the hot star brand overseas. That's just a tile on Disney Plus. And I think eventually Hulu will just be a tile on Disney Plus. Now they may charge more for that tile or the price of Disney Plus might go up a lot. Uh, but you know, you got to make it easy. And just that little thing about exiting a streaming service and going to another one, that's kind of a pain and people don't like it. They don't feel like it's it's the the easiest way to do it. So I think Warner's is smart. This is where they should be, this is where they should be going. Um, Discovery Plus can go next to the HBO Max content because the HBO Max content is not just the HBO stuff. I mean, they have down market, they have reality, they have stuff that, you know, is, doesn't fit the HBO brand. They've kind of successfully broadened out that brand. And, you know, if it's got Dr. Pimple Popper and, you know, uh, Ice Road Truckers next to The Sopranos or White Lotus, and, you know, so what? People can consume that however they want. Speaking of Disney, let's talk a little bit about the very, very bad week for its CEO, Bob Chapek. Disney, if you haven't been following, um, initially said that they were not going to take a position on the don't say gay law in Florida that is being debated. And now that's a that's some legislation that will ban the discussion of gender identity and sexual orientation in certain schools. Um, it's the noise around it is that is definitely targeted towards LGBTQ people. Disney initially decided that they were not going to get involved. They were going to remain neutral. That was incredibly unpopular with its employees. The CEO, Bob Chapek, put out a statement saying that they don't want to get involved because they don't believe corporate statements do anything or matter, and it only inflames people and is weaponized against them. Now, obviously, you know, that's true. It is weaponized, but a lot of people at these companies, especially Disney, that people have a very emotional connection to, they want their company to stand up for them and to get involved in these, especially since at Disney, the previous CEO, Bob Iger, was very active politically and got involved. I wrote about this for Puck yesterday, and it's a really interesting one because by the end of the week, the CEO apologized. He said they will lobby against the bill. They He you know pledged to pause all of their political giving because it came out that they had given money to some of the... Uh, proponents of this bill. You know, John Oliver absolutely ripped Disney a new one on his show last night. Uh, if you haven't seen the segment, it was, you know, a pretty amazing evisceration. And, you know, it really puts Disney in this awkward position because they don't want to be politicized. In this environment, they know that a lot of the Disney fans are in favor of this bill. This polls very well for Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, and they don't want to get involved. But in this day and age, I don't think that's a choice. I think they have to. Yeah, that was so interesting. And like, what a walk back from Chapek and a trial for fire for him coming into this company. Uh, obviously, wanted to make the, the company a little bit less politicized. I, I think you've noted that he's um, maybe a little bit more conservative-leaning himself, but um, absolutely uh, backfired on him trying to take this position. Yeah, and he's got a new communications guy that comes from BP, the oil and gas company. And that guy has, you know, he was a George W. Bush appointee and he gave money to conservative candidates. And, you know, all of which is fine, except when you are leading a very creative-oriented company with a lot of employees that care very much about these social issues. And they are used to the previous CEO taking stands and really putting himself out there. Now, 
Bob Iger had some political aspirations of his own, and he thought about running for president as a Democrat. So, you know, there was a reason why he was doing that. But it's jarring for these people. When you work at Disney, you expect that the company is going to take a stand and, quote, have our backs. I mean, the Pixar employees in particular put out a statement just basically eviscerating the CEO saying, you know what, you claim that we speak through our content, not through our public statements. But they said that they were censored, that they tried to put same-sex content into Pixar movies and Disney always comes back and says, no, you can't do that. So they're like, well, if we can't do it in our content and you're not going to stand up for us publicly, then what are we even doing here? Why, why are we doing this? And that's a powerful argument. And if you're the CEO of a company like that, you sort of have to get in line and you have to support your employees. I thought that was a pretty incredible own goal by Chapek setting himself up that way. Because obviously, you know, Disney has its own long history of censorship, uh, whether it's self-censoring on the the, the Pixar side, um, saying that they felt uh, like they had pushed back from from the corporate level that they couldn't show LGBTQ affection in their films, to um, a very long and sorted history of self-censorship to get their movies distributed in China. This is just another misstep for the CEO of Disney, Bob Chapek. He's had some problems. He's not perceived the best in, within Hollywood. Uh, he got into a fight with Scarlett Johansson over Black Widow money. He's kind of reorganized the company to de-emphasize some of the creative executives. And, you know, he's made some unpopular decisions, even this turning red decision at Pixar. I mean, the Pixar people are upset with him over this don't say gay law, but they're also upset because their last three movies haven't even gotten theatrical releases. They've gone direct to Disney+. And when you work four or five years on a movie and you put your heart and soul into it and you spend $150 million of the company's money on it, you kind of want to see that movie in theaters. And I've talked to Pixar employees who just are not happy about the situation. And they're basically using the Pixar movies to prop up the subscriber numbers on Disney+. Plus. Now, consumers probably like it. They like to be able to see these first-run, well-marketed movies you know, right when they come out uh, at home. I know my kid watched it twice this weekend. But, you know, the the numbers show that Disney Plus gets a boost every time they put a Pixar movie directly on the service. And that is what these companies care about. They don't necessarily care about theatrical box office. They care about boosting the subscriber numbers in order to compete with Netflix. And that's what the stock market has valued. We'll see if that's ultimately the, the, uh, the smartest thing long term. All right. Thanks, Ben, for hopping on with me. Coming up, I'm going to talk to media analyst Jeff Bach about the Batman, the future going to the movies, the box office, all of it. I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, I'm here with Jeff Bach. Jeff is a media analyst at Exhibitor Relations, which is a box office tracking firm in Hollywood. They cover movie releases and uh, how the films are doing globally. Jeff has a great Twitter feed that on Sunday mornings is a must-follow because he goes over all the numbers without any fear or favor and is not afraid to call people out when they flop. It's ERC box office. Uh, welcome, Jeff. Hey, thanks for having me on, Matt. So, Jeff, you know, I, I want to talk about the box office and where we are and whether Batman is a sign of return to normal or whatever new normal means. But I'm going to start with a couple stats. So there's a study that was put out by the MPAA this morning, or the MPA goes by now, which is the lobbying group for the studios, and uh, Netflix is now a member. They basically said that the box office for 2021 was about $21 billion. That's about half of what 2019 was. And that was a benchmark year. That was the year of, you know, 
Disney having all those blockbusters like Endgame and Lion King and Frozen 2 and all the, all the crazy box office. That's not good. And 2020 was a wash. And 2022 is supposed to be down about 20, 25%, depending on which study you look at. Um, you know, with streaming and everybody conditioned to watch movies at home and the studios pulling all of their movies except for the biggest, most surefire box office hits, you know, I am very curious as to whether there is a real future in box office and theatrical movies beyond these big tent poles. And the big example we had was the Batman. This is a hit, you know, this is a, a pre-pandemic hit. Maybe I'm curious what you think, because everything's been great, graded on a scale lately. And uh, people are like, oh, it's great for the pandemic. But is this great for normal? Yeah, this Batman has grossed $239 million domestic. That's already larger than the entire domestic run of Justice League, which topped out at $229 million domestic. And, and this Cape Crusader is just getting started with $463 million worldwide. That's almost five hundred, right? All right, Justice League was terrible, right? Justice League yeah, was hey. a bad movie. This this movie got about 85% of Rotten Tomatoes. You know, I saw it this weekend. I liked it. It was fine. Um, I'm not, you know, a huge, huge comic book guy, but I thought it was decent. And, you know, it's satisfying this void. People want to come back to a certain kind of movie it shows. Spider-Man is a perfect example. 1.8 billion so far. Third highest grosser of all time. You know, I, I just, I wonder... If, uh, you know, Batman is going to get to those numbers, I don't think it's going to get even near a billion dollars. Look, Aquaman hit a billion dollars, believe it or not. That was incredible, but it also grossed like something crazy, like 200 million in China. That's the thing. Getting to those numbers, at least in the past, pre-pandemic, meant a lot of money coming in from the Middle Kingdom, right? Well, the Batman is supposed to be released there March 18th. That's this Friday. Although I'm hearing rumors that Omicron is really hitting China big right now. So who knows if that'll happen, right? Yes, No Way Home was able to hit a billion without China. The Batman, I think, would have a difficult time doing that. Um, and and that's, just, that's just where we're at. But, but to get back to your point, Matt, yes, the 66.5 million second weekend, that's a 50% drop. Look, the the original Suicide Squad dropped 67% in its second weekend, only grossed 43 million. This thing is going to hold steady. It is March madness for most of America out there, but in theaters, it's kind of like March mildness, right? The Batman is the only game in town. It has been for the last couple weeks. It will be for the next weeks. It'd be like if Gonzaga was the only team invited to the big dance, right? Of course, they're going to win the NCAA tournament. The Batman is cutting down the nets at the box office for no other reason than it is the only game in town. And yes, you're right. Critics and audiences dig it. That's simple math. Put out a good product, People are going to show up and no competition. Hey, even better. Yeah. I mean, I remember the old days pre-pandemic when there would be one of these movies every weekend or every other weekend, especially, you know, from March through September. But, you know, the the China question is an interesting one because uh, for people who don't know, you know, Hollywood movies used to do very well in China, depending on, you know, the scale. If it was a big blockbuster type, uh, the Chinese movie going audience would love it. Um not so much anymore. China's put a, a clamp down on the number of movies they let in to the country. Uh, they, When they do let them in, they often don't give them the prime slots and they kind of set them up to fail. Um, 
They have their own blockbusters now in China. There's a movie that grossed $800 million there last year that didn't even get a release outside of China. So, and it's like a propaganda movie. So China's a really problematic territory for Hollywood right now because it, it was, everyone leaned on it. And now, you know, if you don't release it the same weekend it's out in the rest of the world, the piracy problem takes down the movie. I mean, I, I guarantee you people in China are watching the Batman on pirate sites and it'll be interesting. Even if the Omicron surge and, you know, that wild card, I just don't know if anyone's going to, uh, going to turn out. And that's a big problem on the global scale. But I want to get back to this notion of whether we are, quote, back to normal. I mean, what are you hearing in terms of the studio surveys about Omicron or COVID fears in general, you know, for the past year or so, a certain type of movie could do okay at the box office if it, if it appealed to a younger audience, um, more male audience, um, you know, the superhero types, basically the adult drama, the kids' movies, anything that appealed to older people or families with young kids who couldn't be vaccinated, uh, those were just, you know, lining up to fail. Is that still the case, or is there evidence that audiences have turned the corner and they're ready to return for you know different types of movies? Family films had done awful before this during the pandemic, seeing to uh, I think 150 million domestic. That's a that's the biggest number for an animated film um, since the great box office reset, as we call it here. You know, so it is. All of this is a ramp up. You know, we still don't know. You're right. We don't know if and when and if ever movie going will get back to where it was in, say, 2019. But this summer is going to clue us in to a lot of what's going on. Obviously, there are a ton of blockbusters set for release. There's a lot of indie films that are going to be dusting the aisles. This is this is about when I think we're going to get some real numbers about where audiences are at. Um, obviously, that's going to start in May with Doctor Strange 2. But, you know, April is actually a great ramp up as well. You know, you got Sonic the Hedgehog 2, you got Morbius, you've got um, the bad guys and the new Fantastic Beasts, although I'm not so sure about that one. Um, <laughs> you know, these are these are films that, uh, you know, like I said, a wide variety of films competing for that almighty family dollar. And it'll be really interesting to see how April goes. How April goes, I think, is how the summer is going to go. If we see a lot of uptick in April, it's going to be a damn fine summer for the Hollywood. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not as optimistic. I think a portion of the audience is gone, is gone forever. I think young people have sort of tuned out. They will show up only for the A-plus titles. I think anything aimed at adults is going to be really challenging, especially since people have been trained to look for that stuff on their streaming services in many ways by the same studios that are now trying to get people to go back in theaters. I mean, I looked at a trailer before the Batman this weekend and there was a Warner Brothers trailer for all their superhero movies. And they kept saying over and over, only in theaters in 2022, you know, Black Adam, The Flash, yada, yada, yada. And I'm thinking, wow, they needed to do this because in 2021, if you remember, Warner Brothers put all of its movies, including the superhero stuff, on HBO Max the same day they were in theaters, essentially telling the audience, you know, you don't have to go to theaters. It's going to be at home and they're going to have to now retrain people. And I, I, I just don't, I think for certain movies, yes, 
for everything else, no. And that's going to be a real problem, especially for theaters, because if you take away 20, 25% of the box office, some of these theaters will simply go away. And I think you're going to see a shrinkage, so to speak, in the terms of the number of, of theaters that uh, actually exist in this country. Uh, but let's move on. Let's move on. I want to talk a little bit about the Batman and the variable pricing strategy that they employed, because you may not have noticed this if you saw Batman in the first two weekends, but AMC theaters, and then they were followed by other chains, they added about a dollar to the ticket price of the Batman, and they called it a uh, you know a surcharge, a variable pricing, whatever you want to call it. They were charging more to see what they called a high-demand movie, and obviously the superhero tentpoles are the high-demand movies, but it opened up an interesting uh, discussion, and I, I wrote about this for Puck, and I think others wrote about it as well. You know, is this the future where, you know, just like in every other form of entertainment, where if you want to go see, you know, Taylor Swift or Bad Bunny, it's going to cost you more than an artist you've barely heard of? Is the superhero tentpole type movie going to cost you more than something, you know, an indie movie or an Oscar contender or something that isn't on that scale? Absolutely. Guess what? People are going to superhero movies and big sequels and tent pulls and spinoffs, and that's about it. You're right. People may not be going to anything else. And so one of the things that theaters have decided is that we're going to have to boost what's working. You know, look, there's a cost of living increase that happens like clockwork at the beginning of the summer almost every year. And sometimes that's 50 cents, sometimes it's 75 cents a ticket. And it's usually under the radar, so it doesn't create a blip. Well, AMC called out their own blip, right? The squeeze is on, folks. This is what you're going to get, and you will like it. I mean, they just decided to do it early in the year because the Batman is really the only game in town for a month. So they're just getting you used to what is coming this summer. Hey, look, is it here to stay? Probably. With fandom screenings going for $30 a pop for the Batman, you know, boom, there goes the box office. People are willing to dish out this much money per ticket for, what, a, a poster, an IMAX poster, a little merch, just to see it first to avoid the spoilers, right? Audiences are willing to pay a steeper price because to most of us, it's worth it, right? All movies are not created equal. Budget Well, but alone. they have been. They have been, though. That's the, hist the history of the movie business. And the studios like this because nobody wants to think that their movie is less valuable than some other movie. You want to be able, if you're a studio, to tell the filmmaker you're just as valuable as Batman. You are, you know, you, you nobody wants to be in the bargain bin, so to speak. Lies, lies, <laughs> lies, lies. L listen, budget alone dictates that. And so does star power and the number of on-screen explosions. That is what the people have said that they want to see consistently if we look at the last couple decades of movie going, literally more bang for your buck. So fans get in a frenzy over these films and, you know, if this is a part, this increase is a part in a way to save the movie industry, you know, save the whales, a couple bucks won't break most people's bank account. Is it fair? No, it's not. But that's the way it is. Yeah. I mean, people, you know, a dollar, raising it a dollar doesn't, I think, you know, cause most people to turn away. Um, and the studies, there's a, a, a group that put out a study, uh, the Quorum put out a study where they actually interviewed people about this policy, yeah, and about 60% said they were willing to pay a surcharge to see the Batman. Um, now, you know, if you keep raising, people obviously will notice and, you know, supply and demand, you raise prices, you decrease demand a lot. And, you know, when people talk about movie going, number one 
complaint is it's too expensive, especially when you compare it to what's available at home. Now, I do think the movie-going experience is something unique and different, and obviously people listen to music at home and go to concerts. So there is a value proposition that people ascribe to movie-going that is not there when they see it at home. I know I have a little kid. The ability to take him to a movie theater and sit him down with some popcorn and have an activity in the afternoon is so much more valuable than plopping him in front of Disney Plus uh, to watch Turning Red. And we couldn't do that this week because Turning Red was only available on Disney Plus. So, you know, it, it I think the the variable pricing thing is here. The question is, are the theater chains willing to go lower? Are they willing to charge less for a smaller independent movie or even something like the Channing Tatum dog movie that isn't necessarily uh, a you know big explosion blockbuster type, but is a smaller scale movie that for its budget ended up being a hit. And that's where the real tough decisions are going to be made because the studios don't like when the theaters charge less, but the theaters control the pricing. The studios do not control the pricing. They are just kind of along for the ride. And, you know, I don't I don't know if the, the theaters are willing to do that. I mean, they have their Tuesday night bargains. They have their, you know, different pricing based on when you go to movies. I don't know that they're going to they're going to change to a system where they charge less for certain titles. Um, I think it's just going to be charging more. So maybe we shouldn't call it variable pricing. We should just call it uptick pricing because you're right. Variable means, you, you know, you change it on the high end, you change it on the low end. And uh, we haven't seen any low end. Ch- nobody's, no, no uh, <laughs> landlord has ever said, you know what? I'm going down on your rent this month. You guys have been great. It does if there's nobody in the, the apartment. I mean, that's the thing is some of these movies are just dying on the vine when they go to theaters because they're just the audience isn't there because they're used to watching those smaller movies at home. So maybe if something like Belfast or Dog or whatever costs five bucks instead of twelve dollars, maybe people would go and maybe yeah. the overall pie would be bigger. I, I don't know the answer to that question, and I assume there are McKinsey studies and you know a lot of people working on you know figuring out algorithms that will lead to more efficient pricing. Um, but it, you know the, the movie industry is not exactly known as an innovative product. No, it hasn't been for some time. So it, it's just such an interesting time, and and really the pandemic was an inflection point, jumping us you know light years, 10, 20 years ahead into the future of where we probably should be. And uh, it's going to re it's going to be really interesting to see where we're at uh, by the end of this year. Especially since all of these companies that release movies, the studios are so conflicted now because almost all of them also own streaming services. So their incentive is to grow the subscriber numbers of their streaming services, not necessarily to juice box office, except for those big, massive titles like The Batman. Uh, All right, Jeff Bach, thank you very much. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate the insight. Thanks for having me on, Matt. Thanks to everyone for listening to the premiere episode of The Town. Thanks to Ben Landy. Thanks to Jeff Bach. Thanks to Craig Horbeck for producing. We'll be back later this week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.